G'day, this is Living the Dream, the radio podcast of the Hoo-Ha Group. Uh, we're continuing our theme today, looking at work, workers and organisation. We're going to be talking to a comrade of ours, Andrew, from Sydney, who's a high school teacher, and we're going to ask some questions about what's it like working in high schools these days, what are the issues that are facing teachers, what are some of the struggles that are going on and the relationship between those struggles and the union. Uh, Caroline and Arlo might be in the background, so you might hear them too. This is Dave, of course. You can uh, follow our blog of the Hoo-Ha Group. It's called The Word from Struggle Street at the Word from strugglestreet.wordpress.com but before we get into it we're going to listen to a little bit of music history has taught me some strange arithmetic using swords prison bars and pistols English is the art of bombing towns While assuring that you really only bless the ground Science is the honorable Beautiful study where you contort the molecules And then you make that money In mathematics, dead children don't get at it But they count the cost of bullets Coming out the automatic And I'm teaching my hands up Of hunger and theft, mortar shells often echo out the cash and the checks. In geography classes, borders, mountains, and rivers, but they will never show the line between the takers and givers. Algebra is that unique occasion in which a school can say that there should be a balanced equation. Invent statistics is the tool of the complicity, so everybody's with it, and you're the only critic, and I'm teaching. My hands up. Studies is the Goliath to tackle, which turns into a sermon on simplicity of shackles. Physics is the school you own the science force, except for how to get the fuck out the ghetto, of course. Home ec could teach you how to make a few sauces and accept low pay from your Walmart bosses. If your school won't teach you how to fight for what's needed, they're teaching you to go through life and get cheated. And I'm teaching my hands up.
Hey, Andrew, how are you? Good, good. Um, so what we're interested in to guess talking about today is we're trying to do a number of podcasts for the Hoo-Ha Group looking at some of the experiences that workers are having in a variety of different workplaces. Uh, so you want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself where you and where you work? Yeah, so my name's Andrew. I work at a high school, uh, co-educational high school in southwestern Sydney. Um, it's a very multicultural school, so we've got about 80%, 85% non-English speaking background kids, mm-hmm. really high refugee uh, or refugee-like experience population, yeah. pretty significant Indigenous population for the uh, demographics of the area, um, a lot of kids from Middle Eastern backgrounds, um, <clears throat> Polynesian backgrounds, Vietnamese backgrounds, really, really heavily mixed school. Um, I've been teaching for about nine years, eight years mm-hmm. in school. Um, I enjoy my job, but it's not without its challenges, of course, mm-hmm. um, because for many of the students we teach, school's probably the most stable and safest place in their community or in their existence. Uh, and so in that sense, I think there's some pretty important things that we do that are not necessarily tied to curriculum but more sort of uh, in the social sense. Mm-hmm. So give us an insight into what the, a day working as a teacher is like. Yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to give a one-off because it's different every day. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially between... The obvious things, which would be delivering lessons and preparing lessons, there's a whole lot of kind of uh, a range of other tasks involved. Um, increasingly for teachers, um, administrative work is taking a huge burden in terms of workload. Um, and then there's a whole sort of social and emotional management component that sort of goes unseen and teachers kind of tend to do without um, being explicitly taught it in their preparation as teachers mm-hmm. or as explicitly sort of ex- expected in mm-hmm. terms of, um, you know, work outcomes so what I mean by that is you know many times I've you know had to develop the growing awareness of the social needs of kids or the emotional needs of kids and having to do lots of follow-up around kids who've got anxiety issues or familial problems and stuff like that so these are kind of the intersecting uh, issues in classrooms. I'm quite surprised I think a lot of people who aren't teachers or not familiar with teachers talk about that there's a growing administrative workload. Yeah. Can you explain that a little bit? You know, what does that mean and why is that happening? Yeah, it's difficult to, to give it a, a single thing, but basically it's a whole lot of really small jobs, but all add up to a massive increase in workload, particularly even in the, only, in, in the nine years since I've become a teacher. So for example, an excursion, which would seem like a fairly simple thing to make happen, uh, often involves countless hours of preparation mm-hmm. of just paperwork. So you need a risk assessment, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so probably the last excursion I organised um, would have taken the equivalent of probably 15 to 20 teaching periods mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're on a 42-period, a fortnight cycle. So half a week's worth of teaching periods um, just to make an excursion happen. Um, and when do you do this work? You know, like I think people, yeah. in people's <coughs> heads have this yeah. image of, of the work day of a teacher yeah. starting at maybe 8.30, 9 o'clock, yeah. finishing at 3. Yeah. So you're saying there's this increasing amount of yeah. administrative work. Where does that take place? Well, when are people working? you know, on average, we have a, an approximately six-period day and that consists of 50-minute periods. Mm-hmm. Um, and on average, you work four and a half periods a day, let's mm-hmm. say, uh, as is sort of average for the week. Um, so in those three periods, you're often doing things like that, mm-hmm. but then you're working through recesses and lunch times. You're often staying back after work to get that stuff done or getting in early mm-hmm. or taking some of it home. Um, a lot of marking, for example, takes place at home. So you're talking about a kind of leaking of the teaching day outside of that demarcated space yeah, right across your life? totally, totally. And, you know, some of the language that's been absorbed by the administrators of education is that essentially we're salaried workers. So mm-hmm. we work 24-7. 
So there's actually is no that, Is that ever expressed to you explicitly or...? Yeah. There's an, there is an expectation that you are a teacher all of the time. Mm-hmm. So if it's holidays or if it's uh, weekends, you know, it's not, you know, no one thinks it's unusual that you're taking massive bags, you know, shopping bags of, you know, exam marking home on a weekend. Mm-hmm. Now, the kind of dominant argument we normally hear when we people talk about teaching yeah. is like, well, that's fair enough because teachers have these kind of permanent, unsackable positions. Yeah. You're free of review. Yeah. And also, like, let's let's face it, it's part of the dominant argument as well is that you're failing, yeah. that teachers are yeah. doing an adequate job. Yeah. So I'd be interested to hear both, you know, how do teachers respond to that argument yeah. because that is the dominant yeah. argument about your work. Yeah. And what do you think of those kind of claims that you've got these permanent positions yeah. and you're failing, you know, children. Like, which is pretty... Like, if I picked up the Courier-Mail, yeah. I could find that argument. Oh, of course you, know? you can. Yeah, look, and I think, first of all, you know, the whole notion that teaching is permanent needs to be sort of challenged, first of all. I, you know, like, there is a massive trend of casualisation. Mm-hmm. Um, in New South Wales, we've got a category called the temporary teacher, which is often told to us as a victory, and it is a victory by the, by the union. So if you're in an ongoing casual gig mm-hmm. for four weeks or more, that must be turned into a temporary. So it means that you are able to attain permanent um, entitlements such as sick pay, maternity leave yeah. and so on, but you're still precariously employed and can be, you know, lose your job within a term or whatever yeah. it is. And you, two weeks notice is sufficient. So generally teachers who are on temporary engagements are young teachers. Yeah. So a workload for a young teacher is disproportionate to that of a more experienced teacher because they're doing a lot of prep yeah. um, and they're being confronted by things that are totally new and they haven't, you know, developed the repertoire yet. Um, so for those teachers, the workload is immense. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of... Um, not being sackable, it is difficult to sack a teacher, uh, particularly in the context of New South Wales, if you're a permanent tenured teacher. There's a very strong union who's you know, implemented what I think are just mechanisms yeah. to um, support teachers who are struggling, um, and it's only once those processes are exhausted that one can be selected for termination. But in terms of failing kids, I think that what's often not part of the conversation is the complex requirements uh, that are expected today from all students, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a whole range of literacies. It's not just numeracy and, and written literacy or, or, or um, read literacy, but it's also things like computer literacy or uh, social interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a whole range of expectations placed upon teachers in terms of what, um, how we measure our success. And the unfortunate thing is <clears throat> we're in a context where measurement wants to be quantified by either the state or sort of corporate influences. Yeah. Um, but much of what we do is unquantifiable or mm-hmm. is only measurable sort of three or four years after a child interacted with school and they come back and are able to articulate to you the impact school has had. So some of yeah. this stuff is not actually measurable. So to assess whether or not a teacher is succeeding or failing is quite difficult. Yeah. Um, but the state has a, a mechanism now, doesn't it? It which does. Which is standardised yeah. testing. So. Yeah, yeah, which is what I, I describe it as a blood instrument, basically. Yeah. And Can you, like, yeah. because I think a lot of us who aren't, don't have much you know, direct contact at, yeah. at schools, have a vague image of how standardised testing, but could you really flesh that out about what is the current regime of standardised testing? Yeah, so there's a bit of a history to it, but in its kind of contemporary guise, it's a federalised process, so it's mm-hmm. right across the nation. On yeah. the same day, at the same hour, all students in years three, five, seven and nine uh, do standardised testing in numeracy and literacy. Yeah. That includes, um, for the literacy component, written, um, comprehension... Spelling uh, and numeracy, it's a range of problems using both calculator and non-calculator. Yeah. Um, how that impacts, I think, in terms of measurement is that it has fed a massive anxiety into schools about how well students are performing. Um, it has become a measurement not of kids necessarily, but of teacher performance, teacher efficiency. Um, 
It's not uncommon, for instance, in the months leading up to NAPLAN that professional development takes place. Um, and what I mean professional development, we're talking about basically staff meetings. We have a whole staff in a hall yeah. being told these are the strategies we must implement as a whole of school to improve results. Yeah. Um, you know, without sort of a bearing on, without a sort of consideration of, you know, how are, how are these results comparable to where the kids are actually at and all that kind of stuff. So there is a big anxiety and that pressure is put on senior executive of schools, so principals and deputies, and then through down through head teachers and down the management yeah. chain all the way down to teachers themselves. And so, you know, um, and the outcome obviously in the end, and particularly in a school like mine, which is a very tough place, um, you know, we're made to feel pretty shit when the results come out not as high as what might have been expected to get the administrators off the back of the uh, the school. So there, there is some... So it's problems. a disciplinary mechanism on the labour force then? Yeah, I think I think it is. And, and in some of the analysis in, in terms of some of the circles I've been sharing um, is we've, we've come to that. You know, it's about, in a sense, one of the problems of schooling in terms of trying to bring it into the capitalist sort of relationship is, you know, you can measure output in a traditional factory very simply. Yeah. Um, but how do you measure teacher output? Well... The way they're doing it is by superimposing this quantitative mechanism. Yeah, this kind of fake <coughs> ersatz market mechanism because yeah. you're not actually making a commodity that's right, that, that's right. that goes to be sold. Yeah. So then you can measure how much you're actually getting out of a teacher based upon <laughs> yeah. um, this kind of crazy thing called valuating. I mean, this is this has become part of is that the language? Right? That's, that's actually used. yeah, yeah, and it's not even used. It's so not students the sausage factory. The yeah. sausages. Yeah, the and sausage so factory. this is where they are. This is where they we we've gotten them to. This is how much value we've added, and we get them in sort of that is mental. Points. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's totally mental. Yeah. yeah. And so what do you think there's, you know, how do the students experience this testing? It's very... Is, is it making you a sharper, better, leaner teacher? Not at know? all. What it is, it actually interrupts the delivery of the curriculum that you were trained to yeah. deliver. You know, so um, it has a hegemonic function of actually narrowing what we teach yeah. and simplifying it. And so rather than being a liberating process, you know, like in English, you might be learning about literature, mm. you might be learning how to write short stories or express poetry and analyse poetry... And the enlightening curriculum is constantly pushed aside for very much more rigid teaching to the test, passing the test. You know, I mean, it's as crazy as kids in year three get periods of time where they're taught how to colour in bubbles on an exam paper. It's mind-blowing. So they don't mess up the test, you know, so that it, so the results can be as... In, in case possible. there's an outbreak of imagination. That's right, know, that's when... right. So we've got to teach them how to colour in the bubbles. So, so you'll have whole workshops in classes. So, you know, and particularly for primary teachers. So in secondary teachers, um, there's, there's a certain kind of pressure, particularly towards the HSCN. Yeah. But primary school teachers have, you know, a single teacher teaching across a range of key learning areas, a lot of pressure to have all of that pre-planned at the beginning of every single term, um, and then they've somehow got to squeeze in NAPLAN prep. And, and for some of them, it becomes nearly unworkable. Now, I know in Queensland, there's a plan to actually link performance reward pay mm. to NAPLAN results. Yeah. Is there a similar thing being played out federally or in New South Wales? Um, you know, like that... that because I yeah. have an image... Like, part yeah. of the kind of vitriol that's directed yeah. by the state yeah. and the ideological apparatuses of capital towards teachers yeah. is that it's too egalitarian in the pay structure yeah. Yeah. and that teachers have too much power yeah. both in the school and setting the curriculum. Yeah. So this is an idea that we need to differentiate teachers yeah. through measuring their performance. Is this yeah. playing out nationally? I guess there's a few issues that it touches on. The first issue is there's a teacher quality debate that's sort of thriving at the moment. It's been reinvigorated of late. Yeah. And um, this notion that there are bad teachers and there are good teachers uh, and essentially that social inequality mm -hmm. is somehow going to be fixed through better teaching. 
not through some sort of structural reform in the yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Like, like the problem is that the students don't have enough human capital. That's right. And therefore, <clears throat> if we change the teaching, yeah. and so we'll every, solve problems. And, and, and the reality that's is... That's quite look, a co- common idea, right? Yeah, like, yeah. That's really totally, quite a common totally. idea. Totally. And, and the reality is, obviously, there are some teachers that are exceptional in their practice. You know, yeah. there's just something about who they are. And, what, and many of us can identify that one or two teachers that was you know, influential in our existence mm-hmm. in schooling that were like that. Yeah. Um, and that can seemingly work some sort of miracle. But the notion is that Essentially, if we want to fix inequality, we've just got to teach kids better, right? That's mm. going to fix the imbalances in our system. Education will save things. Somehow. Um, but beyond that, how the performance pay stuff's been interpreted across the country is really dependent upon the strength of the unions, I reckon. We're currently going into a transitional phase in New South Wales in terms of the way our pay functions. So traditionally, we've had a step structure that based on seniority, you went up steps. So there were mm. 13 steps. Um, one step was calculated for every year of a degree you had done. So most mm-hmm. people start on step four. Yep. Um, and then you progress until you got to step 13, which was the top step. Um, but there might be older teachers who just did, you know, a teaching yep. diploma from the late 60s or 70s. Right. That so might they might be amazing. Have started, yeah, but they yeah. might have started earlier, but they yeah. would have eventually progressed to step 13. Ah, okay, yeah. So they're all on top step. And if you wanted a higher pay, you sought promotion as a head teacher yeah. and then above. We're going to a new model where the steps have been consolidated to a smaller amount. Um, but there's now a beyond top step called the highly accomplished teacher. So that's kind of our way of addressing the performance pay issue. Mm-hmm. Now, on some levels, that's been sold to us as a victory by the union by the in the last salaries agreement. There is some criticism of that. I can't say that it's widespread, but there is yeah. definitely a critique around it. And the issue is that um, to be considered a highly accomplished teacher, you've got to seek um, a highly accomplished level with something called yeah. the New South Wales Institute of Teachers, mm-hmm. which is now being a federalised and will be an Australian Institute of Teachers and will be transferred onto that. And what that means is essentially spending... $600 to be assessed, Yeah. joining a institute, which yeah. is $100 membership per year. Uh, once you've done all of that, you then must submit a series of forms, be observed externally, and go through probably nearly 12 months' worth of uh, evidence collecting to prove mm. that you are a highly accomplished teacher. Okay. Now, there's some real issues around that because we could be in a situation where a teacher who's got seven years teaching experience but is very savvy at negotiating the formalities can be a highly accomplished teacher and the mm. teacher who's got 30 years in the classroom is a highly accomplished teacher, doesn't really seek to fill in the forms and seek administration. It's insulting at some Yeah, level, totally. Right? I've done right? this for 30 years. Totally. You know, and I you spoke know, that way in the salary. There, there are 30 years of kids that's right. that I've taught, hundreds that's of right. people that's that have right. gone out there. And they're right. masters of their craft. I mean, yeah. that's, that's the bottom line. So this whole notion of highly accomplished teachers, some of us anyway in the profession fear that it's going to create sort of two tiers. You know, there's some of us who are Highly accomplished and walking around with that badge, and others who are just regular. Listeners can hear um, my son Arlo in the background causing some noise as well (laughs) about this. Now, okay, so obviously this is relatively new. Was there resistance to the introduction of standardised testing? Um, In New South Wales, across the country, there was, and and, but it was framed more around what I think people, the 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 various union leadership saw as the easier target for public support, which was around the leagues tables. So we had a phenomenon, and it was emerging in a few places, so it happened in Tasmania, it did happen in, in, in Queensland, where NAPLAN results and the order of schools were published. So you knew good schools and crap schools. Right. Yeah. Um, Again, trying to create like a, a fake market yeah, of yeah, public schools. Right. This is the good service, yeah, this is the bad service. Yeah. And then um, that then got turned into a formal process when the Federal Labor Government created the My Schools website. So you could actually go on... So this is the, so this is big really the Labor yeah, Party. Did the Labor Party, yes, yeah. right. So this is under Rudd Gillard, right? Yeah. Um, so we're talking about a situation where you could go onto a website, search the school that 
you were potentially going to send your child to, and yep. then you were able to compare them to supposedly like schools based on a formula. State and private? Both, yeah. Okay. And you could work out if the school ranked highly or poorly on my schools. Now, the government will claim my school was not a league table, but what? But what Professor was. Margaret Wu, who was a, a Melbourne academic, was very critical on this stuff, said yeah. it was the quintessential league table. And yeah, it's, so it's it's ranking how much schools, well, right? And, yeah. what, and what happened was, on the first night my schools gets launched, um, the site goes down because... Um, the news, the, the papers had basically created uh, mechanisms to troll all the information and pull it all together and they basically created you know, service issues because they were dragging all this data out to generate their own league tables. And so the Sydney Morning Herald, Daily Telegraph, etc., etc., publishing big broadsheet leagues tables. Look at, every look at the school, schools that are shit. Every single look at school in the great. state ranked from top to bottom. And, yeah. You know, and, and um, there were laws in place in New South Wales even at the time which forbid that, but they were, they were never prosecuted. So in response to all of that, um, the Australian Education Union, which is a federation of all the state-based teacher unions, mm-hmm. uh, launched a campaign to put a ban on NAPLAN um, unless reforms were made to prevent league tables being published again. Now, that was obviously a really interesting time. Uh, in New South Wales, is probably where the ban was most likely to be carried out in significant ways. Yeah. And there were lots of talks about breaking the ban by sending, like, of all things, backpackers, right? So trying to, they were trying to recruit backpackers to come in and administer the test because they couldn't get teachers to administer the test in school. Mind-blowing. We had loads of intimidation coming from what we called senior education And we, which state government was... Um, this was Labor. This was Labor again. This was Labor again. All right. Yeah. I, 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 I want to hammer this point yeah, home no, this for listeners. Because, you know, this is pre-O like, Farrell, yeah. right? Um, so we're talking about... The Workers' Party. Yeah. School educational directors yeah. who are basically in charge of... Um, areas of schools, going in and leaning really hard on principals, trying to get them to administer the test with non-members, asking them questions about how many non-members are at your school, you're the only school actually holding the ban, and really trying to disrupt the process. Um, in Victoria and WA, because they're under federal jurisdictions of industrial relations, they were threatened with fair work procedures, which could mean $10,000 individual fines for teachers who were unwilling to participate mm-hmm. in the provision of that plan. So we had some yeah. pretty important stuff going on. Um, in the end, the ban was lifted um, a week prior to the exam, just in enough time to make the exams work. So um, the papers were all delivered to the schools. Then they So the union lifted the ban? The union lifted the ban in New South Wales, but before the New South Wales membership were informed by the union, they were informed by the media, which is a really controversial situation that took place. So what happened was Gillard had a, a last-minute meeting with all the heads of the unions and the AEU, and the alliance between all of the state unions wasn't able to hold. Yeah. And so, in, in a sense, you know, to the credit of New South Wales, I think they wanted to be able to, to, to carry the ban. Mm. But by the time our leaders had gotten back to headquarters, which would have been four o'clock in the afternoon, a midday press release had come out and Gillard was already on the blower, you know, being reported in the ABC saying Naplan goes ahead and the ban is off. So, you know, there are some complexities behind that mm. and it's been hard for us to know exactly what took place in that meeting. We've heard little bits and pieces, but, you know, a lot of it's speculation. One of the things we're kind of interested in yeah. as part of the hoo-ha group and we asked uh, another comrade in the rail industry in yeah. a previous podcast is what, you know, in terms of like on the, the shop floor, on the school level, yeah. what is the kind of relationship that the workers there have with the union? Yeah. It fluctuates, and I, and I would say it's probably at a, at a, in some senses, at a low point mm-hmm. um, at the moment. So most the, people members. 
Yeah, definitely. In, in, particularly in schools in Western Sydney, mm-hmm. you're going to find it's not unusual to have ninety percent to nearly you know, basically hundred percent membership. That, schools, which is right? like a crazy aberration, right. considering you've got seventeen totally. like percent of the workforce totally. in total. You know, at a school like, at, look at a school like mine. Um, we get a visit once a year from what we call um, project officers who yeah. are from the union and they come to do recruitment yeah. and nearly every new teacher or new casual yeah. to the school will join or yeah. at the very least take a form and it's, it's a very positive uh, relationship to the idea of joining the union. Yeah. Um, and but, is, it, is it active or like is there, are there union meetings at the workplace... You know, is it a lived presence in people? In it is school lives? by school, and yeah. it does depend a lot on the activism within the school. Yeah. So most schools, well, you know, every school that is of sizable membership will have a federation representative, at the very mm-hmm. least, and a women's contact. Um, we've moved to a model where we can try to set up committees in every school mm-hmm. um, in response to some other challenges that have been, been thrown at us. Um, but, and it fluctuates depending on struggle. You know, I mean, if we're in a campaign then it's not unusual to have fairly sizable meetings, you know, involving a third of the, the, the teachers at a school at a lunchtime. Oh, that's huge, right? Which is that's a big huge. deal, which is a big deal given people's workload, you know, yeah. um, plus tons of apologies and so on, you know. Um, yeah, which speaks to the kind of power that the union has. You can't totally. just not turn up, right? Yeah, that's you right, have to... that's right. Yeah, yeah so, so meetings can be very well attended. Yeah. Um, but, you know, again, as I said, it fluctuates. If it's just an information distribution meeting, then you might not get, you yeah. know, maybe you might have 10 people showing up. If it's something is on, yeah. we're planning some industrial action, people want to be informed, it's not unusual as yeah. to see a third or even half the school show up to yeah. a meeting. Yeah. So um, you're active in a network yeah. that has a relationship to yeah. the union. Would yeah. you be able to tell us, A, a little bit about what that network is and, yeah. B, maybe just your individual evaluation? Yeah. Of that process. Okay, so it's probably worthwhile sort of explaining a little bit about the structure of the union because I think it's a little bit, um, well, it's quite different, I guess, to most people's experience of participation in, in trade unions. Mm-hmm. So we've got a very participatory structure. So we are literally a federation. Mm-hmm. So what that means is that every area, geographical location, has an association called a teacher's association. And so it's the geographical area, teacher's association. They all have their own budget, which is dependent upon how many members are in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, and association meetings are open to all members. All members have speaking rights and moving rights in these meetings. Um, and so they can debate, move amendment, move motions, move amendments and so on, and usually get reports from organisers and other officials. Mm-hmm. Those association meetings feed into Federation Council. So Federation mm-hmm. Council has delegates from all over the state. Mm-hmm. How big your association is in membership is equal to how many delegates you get how many councillors you get. So I'm from a large association. We have eight councillors mm-hmm. out of um, the 350 or so across the state. Uh, council meets eight times a year, and there's a section in every council called motions from association. Mm-hmm. And so motions that were moved at associations then get debated and could potentially become policy in, in the union proper. Okay, yeah. So it's a fairly democratic structure in that sense. Um, the organisation or network I'm a part of called the Activist Teacher Network, and it's a fairly broad alliance of... Um, uh, activists who are definitely left of the Labor Party. Mm-hmm. We have some relationship with Green teachers, but there are no—I would say—there are no Green members necessarily. Um, there are members of the, of the Activist Teachers Network who um, are in Trotsky socialist organisations mm-hmm. like Solidarity, in other socialist organisations like the Socialist Alliance. Is it—is it explicitly an anti-capitalist formation? Um, I think I wouldn't say it's explicitly so. Yeah, but I think it's clear. That's what the politics are yeah. amongst a lot of people and a lot of people who are on the peripheries will participate. I mean, yeah. the bulk of the participants in the ATN are not members of any organisation formally. Yeah. So they're ungrouped activists of a variety of bents. So we attract yeah. people who are 
you know, uh, have sympathies with sort of anarcho-syndicalism, with autonomism, with broad Marxism, general disaffection of the way formal politics works. Um, So it's a very broad grouping. Um, We've had some relationships with old communists um, and old Maoists, which has been very interesting. Um, Look, participating in that network has been very useful in many respects because it's very difficult to participate in a formal trade union bureaucracy without some sort of solidarity and support. Mm -hmm. Uh, We caucus reasonably regularly. We have a very active email list. We have a website. Mm -hmm. We publish a regular newsletter, which is handed out at every council. So what's the purpose of that newsletter? Well, the purpose of the newsletter, for me anyway, the way I perceive it, is it it, it serves two functions. One is to help orientate our politics in a sense. So we, you know, know, as a group, we contribute and have some analysis about the ongoing debates of what's coming up. Mm -hmm. Some of the stuff's more philosophical, perhaps. Some of it's campaigning-based. Um, so it helps us orientate where we're at yeah. and gives the group some sort of sense of where arguments are heading when we intervene on the conference or council floor. Yeah. Um, but also it's about creating an alternative analysis within the, amongst the membership. So there is a, a bit of an appeal. Like I think, you know, when we're at our strongest, we probably, you know, have the support of anywhere from a quarter to a third of the council, which I think is fairly significant. I mean, mm-hmm. we punch above our weight in terms of size. Realistically, we've probably got about 15 yeah. active members on a floor of 350, yeah. but we can carry, you know, up to 100 people in terms of debate and vote with us. What do you think of that? You know, like, that, that sounds pretty... Yeah. No, for a lot of people, that sounds great, Yeah. right? So what's yeah. your kind of evaluation of, Look, like, a relatively successful left intervention yeah. in a large and important union? Yeah, and it is a large union. No? It's yeah. 70,000 members. It's one of the largest... Well, it's probably the largest yeah. union in New South Wales. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's good and bad, okay? So it's good in the sense that, you know... At various stages, we feel like we're doing something, mm-hmm. something useful, um, something that's express, express, you know, an expression of our politics. Um, we're engaged in some sort of fight. We sometimes can win some of the debates. We sometimes are able to shift the debate of the leadership. But ultimately, what I've started to come to an analysis around is that trade unions are trade unions, and they mm-hmm. serve a particular function in the capitalist relationship. Mm-hmm. And regardless of how open and democratic it is, we get to have the debate, but the outcome is not necessarily that different to what it might otherwise have been had we not been there. Is the, is okay. the anything I'm starting yeah. to feel? Um, Can which, you go into that a little bit more? Yeah, look, like, and, and, and I'm, I'm speaking from my own perspective. Yeah. This, this is not necessarily shared by all members of the network. Yeah. Um, but I guess what I mean is uh, quite recently we had our annual conference. And again, we have a very good annual conference. It's a three-day yeah. annual conference with 500 delegates. Um, again, you know, the same structure, lots of participation. Um, kind of against the grain, emotion got moved around... Uh, some work refusal stuff, basically, mm. saying that, you know, the increasing workloads, particularly yeah. lots of the administrative staff, people can start saying no to, and yeah. the union should be advising them to do that. Yeah. And the leadership were really reluctant within the climate of industrial relations in New South Wales. So to give some context, you know, we're talking about $100,000 fines. Um, the union leadership are really spooked at the moment about taking any form of industrial action that's unprotected. Mm-hmm. We're under a wage freeze, so all salaries action is unprotected because <laughs> we can't actually get anything more than a 2.5% Salaries increase. Because there's no negotiations. There's no negotiations. No negotiations. IRC has been removed all powers to actually shift on that, regardless of what our claim might be. Even if they think the 2.5% is unjust, they are totally disempowered to do anything about it. And so the state put this manoeuvre down. Yeah. O'Farrell, and was there a strike wave against it? There was some action against it. And yeah. there was a really well-attended strike day in um, 2012, mm-hmm. um, which 
was really very well supported by teachers, fireys, and a whole lot of public servant workers. But the teachers formed the main thrust of that. But since then, nothing's happened. I mean, we got fined for that action, yeah. um, but at the time, it was under the old system. So we got a ten thousand dollar fine. In response to that, they brought in these hundred thousand dollar fines, which is really spooked the yeah. union. Could you, I just let's just yeah. well, I'm just pausing that point. Yeah, you know, yeah. I think a lot of there are a lot of workers like teachers yeah. who work in industries where you don't directly produce commodities. Yeah. Right, and you're often paid by the state. Yeah. How effective do you think strikes actually are? As yeah. you know, look, I, yeah, yeah, as look, a weapon, because you know, part of the argument often yeah. is, well, all that you did yeah. is save the state for sure for a whole bunch look, of money, and, and that debate does come up, right? Yeah. For me, let's talk, you know, about a real world example, like that action itself. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a rally in town of forty thousand people, right? Huge. Half of them are teachers, yeah. so twenty thousand of that participate. Participants are teachers. Yeah. What I thought was amazing about it was the participation of young teachers. Mm-hmm. It was their first rally. Yeah. Not only their first strike, but their first strike and rally. Yeah. Teachers' mem- union membership bounced significantly. People mm-hmm. who'd been unfinanced for a while yeah. became financial again. People who'd been teetering on the edges of joining yeah. joined. So it was big, right? So in that sense, what a strike was able to do, okay, maybe it doesn't win the campaign, but it coalesces people in a way that you cannot do through advertising or lobbying or mm-hmm. any other mechanisms that become popular within trade unions, right? Yeah. So, you know, to see young teachers smiling, laughing, having a fantastic time yeah. while sticking up their middle finger to Barry O'Farrell on a fa- on a, who's you know, observing us from yeah. his balcony mm-hmm. was just amazing, right? Yeah. And what do they do? What do these young 20-something teachers do? Plaster all over Facebook. Yeah. as this great thing that we're at. Mm-hmm. And what happens when they get back to school? When's the next one? Yeah. So in that sense... To me, a strike is hugely effective around consciousness development, mm-hmm. about realising our strength, mm-hmm. realising our size, to all be in yeah. one place at once. Yeah. Um, they're significant things, right? Yeah. So what it means is that when you do have the more fragmented elements of a campaign, you've still got a, an image in your mind yeah, really about being part of a bigger thing, yeah. which, which is, you know, we don't have. I mean, if you look at the fragmentation of society more generally yeah. and animisation that workers generally feel, yeah. even in schools, you know, like I might be in a, I'm in a big school with 100 staff, but you still feel like you're in a little silo. Yeah. And you're surrounded by schools that are within walking distance, but you feel like you're on your own mm. in that space. We can't be too kind of economistic about yeah. this kind of stuff, can yeah, we? Yeah. Like a comrade posted on Facebook recently uh, an early Marx quote, you know, okay, so from from St. Marks yeah. about about this point, you know, the, yeah. the strike can't just be evaluated through the yeah. you know, the the direct gains they win, but the totally. ways that they change people's consciousness and yeah, the feelings totally. of power. Totally. And that's material, right? And it also, I think we've really said that that's a stop material. work or a strike. Yeah. It signifies to the members something yeah. serious is happening. Yeah. So we better switch on again to what the union's yeah. talking about or whatever it might be or what an activist at school okay. talking about. But, but as you were just saying previously, yeah. you've got a kind of criticism of the limitations of the trade union. Well, uh, look, I think, as I said, within those conditions, we haven't had an action like that since. Yeah. But the 2.5% wage freeze remains. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so... Um, so, just, so going back to that earlier story then, so in terms of the, the, the limitations of even the democratic model... A motion gets up against the grain of the leadership saying people should have a right to refuse some of this work unless they're mm. getting appropriate relief. So basically yeah. being taken off class to do some of this administrative stuff. Yeah. Um, the following day, so the union lost the vote, the leadership lost the vote rather, yeah. on the floor. The following day they move an emergency you know, removal of standing orders yeah. to basically freeze the way the constitution functions on the floor. Move yeah. an emergency motion saying what was moved yesterday needs to be suspended and referred to a legal team because we're scared of the IRC interpret that as a form of industrial action, drag us through it, expose us to fines, so weak. And so on, right? Yeah. Well, definitely the feeling that it was weak um, was shared by... Arlo's en- like emphasising <laughs> his... Yeah, he's, he's uh, going at the right times. Yeah, think. totally. Um, but the feeling that it was weak was definitely shared by 
a number of people I spoke to on the day, and, and it was quite alarming. And a lot of people had never seen that kind of freak out before on that yeah. level. So democratic structure, but again, you know, when 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 the fear is put, you know, into people enough, that it's, you know, we're talking about the end of the union, because um, that's how it's posed. Yeah. You know, this is industrial suicide. This kind of stuff will, you know, could see us deregistered. Got to fight smart. Yeah, give it powder dry. But we're actually being, yeah. you know, told that. Strike action or unprotected action could end up in us being deregistered. And that's mm-hmm. the genuine fear in some of the leadership polls. Yeah. Uh, so, what do you think? You know, with this recent, this is a recent experience. Very recent, yeah. So, how's that impacting on your thinking in terms of you know, anti-capitalists active in higher yeah. education, in secondary education, yeah. or primary education, some kind of orientation shift to the union. You know, you don't have a completely abstentionist attitude. No, not to the at all. Union. Which is which is controversial among some of the political circles I've engaged with in, in the past. Yeah, for sure. so like left communists, left communists, or even a, you know, anarchisty kind of positions, yeah. or even autonomous sort of positions. Right. Yeah, I think like this would link to another another yeah. thing is you know like there, there would be listeners to this show. Yeah. Like, what are you talking about? School's just fucked. Yeah. yeah. You know, you oh know. look, you know, I mean. That's probably part of the debate that we don't have enough of in the ATN is actually reflecting that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. And school is fucked. <laughs> Let's be frank about it, right? Mm-hmm. It serves a certain uh, function within capitalism. Yeah. But within that space, there is a certain level of autonomy that teachers do actually have yeah. um, to do counter-hegemonic stuff. So it's not, it is imperfect, you yeah. know, definitely. And I think I'm open to discussing the criticisms of the function of school within capitalism for sure. Yeah. You know, teachers are oppressors yeah. in a certain way. You know, I think we're sort of just nicer prison screws. You know what I mean? Like I think that there is definitely a component to that that we yeah. need to be reflective of, right? Um, but more broadly in terms of my feelings about participation within the union structure, I think there are some issues. I think that um, my personal, and I've shared this, this criticism with, with a, uh, activist teacher network comrades, so this is not, not new, but in a sense our participation and our desire to win debates on union in union apparatuses, kind of shifts our focus sometimes. Like away from your fellow away, workers. Yeah, away from the bread and butter staff yeah. on the ground, organising more locally, um, particularly at the association level, which is the most participatory level of the yeah. union. So there's probably some more stuff that should be done there. Um, I'm feeling a little bit um, sort of negative is not the right word, but kind of like in some levels, the experience and the experiment of participating in the unions at that level, a bit of a regroupment, left regroupment project, which has actually been really interesting and really has taught me a lot about sort of, the, you know, the possibilities of a really broad communist spectrum, mm-hmm. you know, ranging from old school Stalos right through to anarcho-syndicalists, mm-hmm. all working together, having beers together at lunchtime, strategizing together, caucusing together in a really comradely fashion. Like the sectarianism yeah. has been very low, which was counter to... Because it's not just about reified ideology at that point, is it? It's, you know, you know what? People are older <laughs> and they're just a bit more mature yeah. than my, you know, for instance, when stuff I was involved with with students, you know, we yeah. had to win every debate. It's just much easier for people to let things go that are not yeah. that important and focus on the stuff that is, right? Yeah. So on that stuff, I've learned a lot and I think it's been a very, very useful exercise. But in terms of what we can do within those kind of current strategies of relating on that formal level... Mm. Well, there's some questions to be raised. You know, one of the things I've, I've suggested, suggested maybe informally, is, is a, a conscious um, uh, withdrawal for a period of time. So maybe a three-month or four-month withdrawal of participation within those structures. And instead of going to a council, we may think about <clears throat> having lunch together on the same yeah. day at the same venue. Mm-hmm. So we're in and around people who have been friends of the network and come and talk to us about what's happening on the floor and whatever. Yeah. But we can be having different conversations and seeing what that might bring. And, and, you know, is there any impact with us not being there? And no longer, say, investing 
in the union. Like, I think yeah. investing at the union leadership yeah. is some kind of idol yeah. to be pushed against. Yeah, you that's know, right. Yeah. You know, because, you know, it's, a, it's, it is a, it's an emotional roller coaster, yeah. right? You go in there and you feel fantastic when you get a one-up on them, but more often you don't and you leave feeling really dismayed mm. and you've expended a whole lot of energy and that's a feeling that's not that great, you know? So, yeah. I, yeah. I, I'm not sure if this is the same in, in your industry because... Um, the, the density is so large, but in yeah. the context of the debates around the budget, yeah. you often, I often saw this kind of displacement where people were actually like, well, shit, you know, in terms of my workplace, yeah. there's no organisational presence. Yeah. I can't organise a strike. Yeah. I'll kind of focus on the union leadership yeah. as having this ability yeah. to really manifest this great yeah. political moment. Yeah. And then not, no one's surprised when, you know, no one has so far been able to prompt the union leadership to carry out industrial action. Well, but mean, the other question is, like, <coughs> yeah. do they even have that power? You know, well, do the union leadership have this power? Look, the irony of it all, kind of I mean, we're, we're, we're fairly well embedded in the belly of that beast, yeah. right? So we're actually, we can get up and I can speak, or my comrades can speak to 250 or 300 teachers on a council yeah. about things like you're talking about, yeah. right? And so the leadership are there and accountable to 300 yeah. members eight times a year. Mm-hmm. We had no presence at the March in May, for example. Yeah. No formal federation presence. When at the same time, most of our investment in terms of campaigning has been around the Gonski yeah. funding model, right? And we thought it was ludicrous. So we got up and said there should have been a presence. There were yeah. teachers there looking for a teachers' federation yeah. banner and it wasn't there. There was NTU banners or mm. other... T- and so it's just a bit bizarre that there mm. wasn't a participation there. In the subsequent rally uh, that was held last Sunday that mm. was organised by... Um, the, the trade union apparatuses, yeah. Federation did get behind that and had mm. a, a Gonski banner and, a, you know, mm. people in their green Gonski shirts. So, look, in terms of industrial action, though, it's not not on the cards whatsoever. Yeah. Um, you know, to the point that even two years ago when this campaigning was on, um, again, against the grain at, a, at an annual conference, we actually got a motion up saying that we, there would be a central action and a march uh, around this campaign. There's mm. subsequently not actually been a centralised march in New South Wales around Gonski. Mm-hmm. But there have been tons and tons of advertising campaigns, um, lobbying. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm not wholly, wholly critical of that stuff. But I guess if we're going to invest millions of dollars, and we're talking about millions of dollars in advertising, why can't those millions of dollars in advertising also be advertising a rally happening yeah, that yeah. week or something? You know, like, there's no... You know, there's certain successes to the social media and the advertising model they've adopted. Yeah. And I don't want to be too ultra-left and say it's all just fucked because it's not a strike, it's not yeah. industrial because they've actually done some pretty interesting stuff. They have shifted some consciousness and actually mm. really changed the debate in the, in the lexicon of even the media. Yeah. But to what point, to what ends, you know? Mm. Um, why can't there be a dual model where you're saying, all right, we're going to do all this stuff, but we're going to look back on a history, history in our base as an organisation. It's one of the last unions that actually used to strike and win decent pay deals, yeah. you know? So why can't we link those two things together? And so that's kind of been some of my strategy in some of the interventions. Um, but yeah, it's it's very imperfect, obviously. Yeah. Well, maybe what we'll do, Andrew, is uh, we'll um, track you down in a couple of months, yep. and we'll follow up with you uh, to see how things are going yep, with the sure. Activist Teach Network. Yep. Thank you very much for no uh, joining us on Living the Dream. Yep. To remind uh, the listeners, I think we have a pretend to have a hashtag called hashtag LTR. No. LTD Radio. Um, you can uh, follow us on our blog at the word from strugglestreet.wordpress.com. Andrew, is there anything you didn't get a chance to talk about or mention that you would like to talk about? Oh, look, there's, there's probably tons more we could, but yeah. I, think, I think that covers most of it. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, to give people yeah, an idea of where we're at. You know? Yeah, that's really brilliant. I, look, I, find, I think that a lot of people will find, um, you know, one of the things that we really want to do is create the space again where, you know, 
workers speak for themselves. Yeah. You know, about the kind yeah. of tensions and antagonisms that are playing out. Yeah. And I think your uh, contribution today will add to making that kind of complex cool. picture. So thanks thank you very much. Yeah, and thank uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. And in the background, again, of course, was Caroline and Arlo. Arlo providing... Oh, he's looking at the computer right now. Arlo providing the appropriate syncopation and rhythm uh, to accentuate the points. All right, so... Uh, Thanks very much for joining us. There'll be more podcasts soon. Oh, and also as well, that was the coup at the beginning of the podcast, and we might go out with the coup track as well. Great. Instead. We got the guillotine. We got the guillotine.